Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, the Florida land boom of the 1920s and the subsequent bust was experienced differently by African Americans. Many of the people who were involved in this process were into stratified economic system, and many of these people, when they're African American or working class, were really sort of caught in these sort of uneven structures. We'll discuss food history as a way of understanding Florida's past. By 1935, the Keys were all but depleted of stone crabs, and Florida enacted its first limitations on the harvesting of the crustacean. And we'll visit the S.H. Johnson X-ray Clinic, an endangered historic structure in Miami. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. I'm coming home, I'm coming home, tell the world I'm coming home, let the rain wash away. All the pain of yesterday I know my kingdom awaits And they've forgiven my mistakes I'm coming home, I'm coming home Tell the world I'm coming In the 1920s, Florida experienced a land boom that led to the creation of new cities that still exist. By the middle of the decade, the real estate bubble burst bringing economic hardship to residents of the state even before the stock market crash that brought on the Great Depression. Julian Chambliss is professor of history at Michigan State University. Much of his work focuses on real and imagined urban landscapes in Florida. Julian Chambliss will participate in a panel discussion on the Florida land boom of the 1920s during the Florida Historical Society Virtual Public History Forum, taking place May 20th through 22nd online at myfloridahistory.org. I think about the, the land boom as a part, a culmination at some level of a longer history of Florida as a land of desire. A lot of the work that I think of when I think about Florida, especially in this sort of Gilded Age period, is connected to these narratives of leisure and paradise that is accessible for so many people around the country. In particular, my, my concern with Central Florida communities like Eatonville uh, and Orlando, especially in this early period, really point to the idea that this was an opportunity um, promoted by many people, speculation that weaved together questions of consumption, questions of leisure, and questions of, of wealth and the possibility offered by Florida as a sort of unspoiled paradise. It's telling to me, in particular, when you think about this in the context of African-Americans, however, that paradise was never even. And then even as we think about the, the land boom and this sort of devastating effect, many of the people who were involved in this process were, it's a stratified economic system. And many of these people, when they're African-American or working class, were really sort of caught in these sort of uneven structures. 
For African-Americans, it's easy to see. And some of the political and social transformation of the early period, um, which are really pushing for African-Americans to pursue their own visions of property and citizenship in the possibility that was offered by Florida. And we can see a lot of the language here coming from black leaders, sometimes in concert and in cooperation with, with white counterparts in terms of like a Jim Crow structure, but sometimes on their own, sort of visioning Florida as a place with not too many people in it that you could carve out a kind of existence that could deliver on the American dream. I think about this in particular in some of the planned communities that we associate with the Central Florida region. And so the consequences of, I think, both the possibility represented by Florida as a sort of paradise that you can afford to fall back on that famous phrase, but also as a place that is sort of caught up in the Southern story, right? Like Florida is part of the South and the nature of that Jim Crow power dynamic and these questions around property and citizenship that African-Americans are trying to navigate really means that some of the really powerful conflicts that we see in the 1920s, the race riots, the rise of the Klan, and eventually the, I think even the land bust are all part of the same sort of process. So it's really a, a complicated story that really points toward really a broader American mindset that is playing itself out early in Florida, but really becomes a model for the entire country, I would think. As with the population at large, the experiences of African-Americans in Florida's boom and bust of the 1920s varied between people living in more modern cities and those living in rural areas. Historian Julian Chambliss. It really becomes a question of class and a, a question of, of culture. I'm thinking in particular of Nathan Connolly's work on, on Miami. And so this idea that you do have like a, a professional class of African-Americans who are property owners who are able to, to weather the storm in a different way from the working class, people be they black or white, or many of sort of like the ethnic groups in South Florida. I do think that it becomes a question of like where you are in that, that really dynamic social landscape and the struggle to sort of maintain yourself and the pragmatic decision-making that I think you see when you look at sort of African-American community, both in terms of like organizations, but also in terms of like that African-American leadership, what they're doing. So those circumstances, I think, often become deterministic of how well you can weather the storm, even as the really fundamental uh, transformation associated with the bus uh, create different circumstances for the state as a whole. The American dream of property ownership was so enticing in some African-American communities that families held on to their property for more than a century. Only the economic troubles of much more recent times forced some African-Americans to sell their Florida property. I think, you know, from a question of racial history and property, uh, there's no question that the dichotomy created by 1920s has a detrimental effect, I think, for African-American property owners. I think in those decades prior to um, the land boom, looking particularly in Central Florida, you can see success, uh, arguably success of African-Americans, even as laborers acquiring property and doing so with an idea, a pragmatic idea that property was going to be the, the key to uh, future success, especially in, in terms of their descendants. You know, I think about this in the context of places like Eatonville, I think about this in the context of uh, communities in Orlando, where you can see very clearly the Black community there seeing property ownership as a, a vehicle, even in the context of Jim Crow segregation, holding on to that property. You know, I, I have seen the land records of people who acquire properties 
in the 1890s and still held on to it within the same family well into the 2000s. They lost it around 2008 because they yeah. sold it. Not all African-Americans weathered the storm of Florida's boom and bust of the 1920s, with many leaving the state. As Julian Chambliss points out, this was also a time of black voter suppression, lynchings, and repressive Jim Crow laws in Florida. The 1920s are also a period of great racial strife that's feeding into this desire on the part of African-Americans to leave the state because of, you know, we had the red summer in 1919. But Florida has a number of like really stark racial instances in the 1920s that really speak to the hostile nature of white people to aspirational efforts on the part of African-Americans. A lot of that racial violence, you think about like the Okoye massacre, you think about some of, some of these other instances, they are economically motivated. These are often property-owning African-Americans who are the trigger for anti-Black violence that in fact creates the opportunity for white people to acquire property. I mean, one of the things that we can talk about endlessly when we talk about these sort of mass lynching events and violence against African-Americans is that the property that these people leave behind when they run away eventually makes its way into white hands. And that has a devastating effect in terms of generational wealth, which goes back to your point about the home property being a generator for wealth. I mean, this is an idea that's an American idea African-Americans believe in that idea, and they're often making pragmatic decisions in the 1920s in terms of trying to acquire property, hold on to property, work within their community, work within that separate segregated space to do the best that they can, you know, making deals with the white power structure, especially these sort of African-American elites. I think you can see uh, patterns of this all across the state and urban areas in particular, where there's some sort of group that works as a kind of leadership group reflecting African-American ideas to a white leadership group, often, at least in lip service, you're trying to avoid conflict. But the nature of that, that uh, escalating set of violent altercations around race and the devastating displacements associated with that, those are something that really mar um, the sort of like mythology of Florida, the place you want to go. So I go back to my point, like, who are you trying to sell Florida to? Like, it, it is suckers. That's a horrible thing. But it's people outside the state that are being like enticed for African-Americans and working class people. It's a much more complicated story. Julian Chambliss is professor of history at Michigan State University. He'll join a distinguished group of scholars for the panel discussion, Florida Land Boom of the 1920s, presented as part of the Florida Historical Society Virtual Public History Forum, accessible online starting May 20th at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org, where you can listen to archived episodes of this program, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, find great books on Florida history and culture, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Choo-choo to Broadway, boo, Cincinnati. Don't get icky with the one, two, three. Life is just so fine on the solid side of the line. Biff, 
hold tight, hold tight, hold tight, hold tight for the Yakasaki wants some seafood, mama. Shrimps and rice, they're very nice. Hold tight, hold tight, hold tight, hold tight for the Yakasaki wants some seafood, mama. Shrimps and rice, they're very nice. I like oysters, lobsters too. I like my tasty butterfish. Ooh. When I come home late at night, I get my favorite dish. Fish, hold tight, hold tight. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, we all know that Floridians and visitors to Florida love to eat our local cuisine. Some historians use food as a lens for understanding the past, right? Absolutely. Although academic interest in the history of food is relatively recent, Food history is part of every family and culture. Recipes are handed down from generation to generation, often with the admonition not to share it outside the family. Just try to get my grandmother's roll recipe. I will happily share the rolls, but not how to make them. The academic interest in food history takes many forms. The cultural history surrounding food, gender history in food, kitchen gardens and women's work, the transition from canning to purchasing canned and frozen foods, and the environmental history of food, just to name a few. Florida's food history is similar to that of other southern states, but also very different, as its food production and multicultural influence from the Caribbean and Gulf have always shaped the foodways. Two articles that have appeared in the quarterly in recent years demonstrate the ways which historians integrated the history of food with environmental history, tourism, rural foodways, women's history, and black history to understand the importance of food in communities and households. Now, much of Florida cuisine is seafood-based. How is food related to environmental history? The first article we're talking about today, Eating the Claws of Eden, Stone Crabs, Tourism, and the Taste of Conservation in Florida and Beyond, by Nicholas Mink, appeared in spring 2008. At the time, Nicholas was a Ph.D. student in environmental history at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Nicholas received his Ph.D. and entered an academic career. But today, he is CEO of Sitka Salmon Shares, which markets small boat fisherman-caught salmon from Alaska. In February 2020, he appeared on the Larry Miller Show for Wisconsin Public Radio to talk about small boat fishing and a documentary film, Last Man Fishing. He is the executive producer of the film. His article for the quarterly fits well with the public radio broadcast. Although stone crabs have been part of the diet of Americans from North Carolina to Texas, they have become associated with South Florida and the constructed paradise of winter tourists. As Mink noted, they became part of the Edenic narrative that created, promoted, and transformed the physical landscape of Florida. He focuses his article on the iconic restaurant Joe's Stone Crabs, which was founded in 1913 by two Hungarian immigrants, Joseph and Jenny Weiss. Eating stone crabs at the restaurant became an essential part of the winter tourist experience before World War II, a gastronomic masterpiece that had been procured in nearby Monroe County. 
Of course, as word spread the wonders of stone crabs, the harvest increased dramatically. By 1928, fishermen were harvesting more than 100,000 pounds of the crustacean annually. By 1935, the Keys were all but depleted of stone crabs, and Florida enacted its first limitations on the harvesting of the crustacean. The post-World War II tourists, wanting the authentic Florida experience, expected a stone crab meal also. Other restaurants joined Joe's in meeting that demand, and the pressure on the harvest of stone crabs increased. Fishermen ranged farther from Florida shores, and both state and federal agencies enacted stronger regulations on the harvest. The taste of stone crabs, which became identified with Miami, was not unique to either the city or South Florida. But the myth was stronger than the reality and useful in the creation of paradise. It was, however, a myth with environmental consequences that required state and federal regulation to assure the continuation of the authentic tourist experience. Now, food and kitchens are an essential part of the life of a household. What does food tell us about household relations? In 2011, an article by Rebecca Sharpless titled The Servants and Mrs. Rawlings, Martha Mickens and African-American Life at Cross Creek, is not primarily about food. Rather, as she explores the complicated relationship between Marjorie Kennan Rawlings and the women who managed her gardens, chickens, cows, hogs, and kitchen, she provides insight into the production, preparation, and serving of food at Cross Creek. Professor Sharpless is at Texas Christian University and is nationally known for her work in agricultural history and oral history. She was president of the Oral History Association in 2006. One of her books, Cooking in Other Women's Kitchens, which was published in 2010, fits with this article. Rawlings and the two black women, Martha Mickens and Adela Parker, could not have been more different. Rawlings bridged the gap between isolated farm life and more sophisticated life with her New York publishing friends. Mickens was a countrywoman who had the knowledge for living on the land. It was her work that enabled Rawlings to live the farm life. She raised the chickens, milked the cows, butchered the hogs, and planted and maintained the garden. She had the close environmental knowledge that permitted her to gather wild fruits and berries and prepare the meals that resulted from a day of hunting or fishing by Rawlings and her friends. She never met Rawlings' expectations for setting a proper table or preparing delicate sauces. Idella Parker was college-educated and had been employed as a cook for wealthy families in Boca Raton before coming to Rawlings' kitchen. Parker had the knowledge and skills to prepare the sophisticated meals that Rawlings demanded when she entertained friends from New York. The preparation of meals and the table presentation, both for daily life and entertaining, were sources of frustration and conflict between the three women. In drawing our attention to the kitchen conflicts, Sharpless shows us that food is more than sustenance. Even in an isolated farm kitchen, the dynamics between the person who provides the food and the one who prepares and presents the food for consumption can be a struggle for power based on knowledge, race, and social class experiences. Well, Connie, now I'm going to have to go make myself something to eat. Thanks. You're welcome. 
Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. I like oysters, lobsters too. I like my tasty butter fish, Joe. When I come home late at night, drip, drip, dripping on the window pane, washing. Hold tight, da 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 Hold tight, she wants to say food, mama. Shrimpers and rice, they're very nice. This is Florida Frontiers. The S.H. Johnson X-ray Clinic is an endangered historic structure in Miami. Holly Baker is Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. The Florida Trust for Historic Preservation's yearly 11 to Save list contains the most threatened historic properties and resources across Florida. The S.H. Johnson X-ray Clinic in Miami is featured on 2020's 11 to Save list. Ennis Davis is an urban planning consultant and a trustee for the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation. He told me more about the S.H. Johnson X-ray Clinic. The S.H. Johnson uh, X-ray Clinic is you know, one of the sites that was nominated to Florida Trust Historic Preservation's 11 Save list last summer. And it was nominated to help bring awareness to its uh, history and cultural significance to the Miami community in order to support efforts uh, for its preservation and restoration. The clinic itself was established in 1939 by Dr. Samuel H. Johnson, uh, who came to Miami as a child around 1903. Um, and he began to uh, practice medicine after attending college at Florida A&M University. I must say that because I'm an alumni of Florida A&M as well as Meharry College up in uh, Tennessee. So he establishes his practice in 1931, constructs this structure in 1939, and uh, he really becomes South Florida's first black physician specializing in radiology. Uh, he is said to have amassed you know, some of the most extensive x-ray equipment uh, of any black practitioner across the country. Dr. S.H. Johnson originally built his x-ray clinic because at the time, black residents weren't allowed to use the x-ray facilities at Miami City Hospital. The clinic's building featured an architectural design called Streamline Modern, a more austere Art Deco style featuring long, clean lines and polished curves. The building's innovative style was created by a mechanical drawing instructor at Booker T. Washington High School, identified only as a Mr. Barker. This Art Deco building basically uh, reflects the reality, I guess, of segregated life in Miami during the Jim Crow era in the early uh, decades of the 20th century. The architectural style was, you know, very popular in the 1930s when it was constructed. And, you know, it is significant in, in terms of being related to Johnson and his contributions to the community. 
Also, uh, something that's very interesting about the building and its history is Johnson's brother, John Johnson, actually practiced law and had a law office in that building between 1947 and 1955. One of his guests was Thurgood Marshall, who came there for a meeting in 1949 to discuss a local uh, discrimination case that was taking place. At that point, uh, Marshall was legal counsel for the NAACP. And then a few years later, you know, Marshall would go on to become the first Black U.S. Supreme Court justice. Um, so that's another historical fact about uh, the building in and of itself. The S.H. Johnson X-ray Clinic was built in a neighborhood called Overtown, a historically Black community north of downtown Miami. During its golden era from the 1930s through the 1950s, Overtown was known as the Harlem of the South. This building basically serves as an anchor to Northwest 2nd Avenue and Northwest 11th Street in Overtown, which was back during neighborhood's heyday, basically described as the little Broadway of the South. Uh, it was a place where there were many dance halls, restaurants. It was if you were black and you came to Miami, this was the strip that you were going to. This is where the theaters were at. This is what the Chitlin Circuit destination. And so the Johnson X-ray Clinic played a, a significant role in, in where it was located along that, that stretch. In the 1960s, two expressways were constructed through the middle of Overtown, causing fragmentation in the neighborhood. In less than a decade, the once vibrant community saw its population decline. Many of the historic buildings that were not demolished were left abandoned and neglected. Ennis Davis. After Johnson retired, you get into the 1970s and 1980s, the neighborhood is really un undergoing a lot of change. Um, and this is pretty much consistent across the U.S. If you date back to the 50s and the 60s, much of its economic um, stability was taken away with the construction of Interstate 95. Uh, later on, the metro rail, monorail system was constructed through that area, which also led to some uh, destruction. And it was always a target of urban renewal and um, kind of displacement of the population that was there. So that led to a decline in this neighborhood, especially after the um, Civil Rights Act of you know, 1964. Over time, as the neighborhoods continue to, this portion of the neighborhood has continued to be erased. This is one of the last significant buildings uh, that has been preserved. And even though it has been sitting in an abandoned state, it's significant in that it still survives today. And so as Miami is now undergoing this uh, urban renaissance, it's, it's morphed into a regional small southern town to a cosmopolitan you know, metropolis there's an opportunity here to recapture some of that lost elegance and legacy and sense of place of the Overtown community by incorporating sites such as this that still exist today. In 1981, Dr. S.H. Johnson donated the clinic to the Black Archives of Miami. Though currently vacant and in disrepair, the X-ray clinic building still lives on and serves as a reminder of life in Overtown in the early 20th century. It's also a notable example of the refined, streamlined modern architecture that was popular in the 1930s. To learn more about the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation and the 11 to Save list, go to floridatrust.org. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week 
Until then, you can find us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Holly Baker and Connie Lester. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.